0: The following message was recorded at Spirit and Truth, the 2019 Clear Up Shepherds Conference, presented by Warhorn Media. This session is titled, Worship on Earth, Style, and was given by the Rev. Dr. Andrew Dion. Andrew is the senior pastor of Trinity Church PCA in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He has a Master's of Divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary and a doctorate in music composition from the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. I want to start with something that Augustine wrote in his Confessions on Music. Uh, as you may know, Augustine made his way to Milan and sat under the preaching of Ambrose. At that time, Augustine would have been about 30 years old and Ambrose would have been about 50 years old. And Augustine said the following about Ambrose He said, Unknowingly, I was led by you, by God to him so that through him I might be led knowingly to you. So Augustine attributes his conversion to the work of Ambrose. Also in Milan, Augustine heard the music of the worship services and as with most things, Augustine had thoughts about music and its place in worship that others did not have or did not think they had and he was able to put them into words. He grappled with the beauty of music and how to put beauty in its proper place in worship. Here's what he said, and it's on the overhead behind me. The delights of this sense of hearing had a stronger grip and a greater authority over me, but you loosed the bond and set me free. Yet now when I hear sung in a sweet and well-trained voice those melodies into which your words breathe life, I do, I admit, feel some pleasurable relaxation though not of the kind which would make it difficult for me to tear myself away for i could get up and leave when i like nevertheless they do demand those those sounds they do demand oops i lost my place uh, a place of some dignity in my heart so that they may be received into me together with the words that give them life and it is not easy for me to give them exactly the right place. It's not, it's, it's hard for Augustine to put, to put the music in the right place when the music and the words combine in worship. For sometimes it seems to me that I am giving them those melodies more honor than is right. I may feel that when these holy words themselves are well sung, our minds are stirred up more fervently and more religiously into a flame of devotion than if they were not so well sung. And I realize that the emotions of the spirit are various, each by some secret kind of correspondence capable of being excited by its own proper mode of voice or song. But I am often deceived by this pleasure of my flesh." to which the mind should not be given over to be enervated. But at other times, when I am over-anxious to avoid being deceived in this way, I fall into the error of being too severe. So much so that I would like banish both from my own ears and those of the church as well as the whole, as well, the whole melody of sweet music that is used in David's Psalter. And the safer course seems to me that of Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, who, as I, often, I have often been told, made the reader of the psalm employ so very small a modulation of the voice that the effect was more like speaking than singing. But then I remember the tears I shed at the singing in church at the time when I was beginning to recover my faith. I remember that now I am moved not by the singing, but by the things that are sung when they are sung with a clear voice and correct modulation. And once again, I recognize the great utility of this institution. So I fluctuate between the danger of pleasure and my experience of the good that can be done. I'm inclined on the whole, though I do not regard this opinion as irrevocable, to be in favor of the practice of singing in church, right? So he's inclined to be in favor, but he could give it up. So that by means of the delight in hearing, the weaker minds may be roused to a feeling of devotion. Nevertheless, whenever it happens to me that I am more moved by the singing than by what is sung, I confess that I am sinning grievously, and then I would prefer not to hear the music. There's so much that we could pull out of uh, what he said there. But the main point that I think is worth thinking about is that last point he makes so often we're moved by the singing but not by what is being sung right there's a pro- there's an order that our music should take and that should always be that what we sing is what we're praying before god and the music is simply a means by which it helps us pray right the words always take primary importance the worship war for the past however many years has been, a, has been a prolonged fight about different answers to this question. What musical styles are reverent? What musical styles are reverent? Some say one thing, some say another, some say that it's everything, some say nothing. But there are questions that I don't think we've grappled with like those brought to mind by the quote from Augustine, is it sin when the music sways us more than the words? Is it sin? Is it really hard for our hearts to give aesthetics and musical style their proper place in worship? When we start to argue about musical styles, have we missed the point? So let me begin here. What does God's word say to us about musical style? What does God's word say to us about musical style? Let me quickly run through about 55 verses, okay? Just stick with me here. 1 Samuel 16:16 16, 16, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well anything in there about musical style David and all Israel were celebrating this is 1st Chronicles 13:8 David and all Israel were se- celebrating before God with all their might even with songs and with lyres harps tambourines cymbals and with trumpets. 1 Chronicles fifteen sixteen. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives the singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Uh, sounds of joy. That might suggest something about style. 1 Chronicles fifteen twenty. Zechariah, Aziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Masiah, Benaiah, with harps tuned to Alamoth. With harps tuned to Alamoth, which means a young woman, a virgin, so harps of maiden-like tone, right? So they were high, right? They were soft and high, we take that to mean. First Chronicles 25.1, moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Haman and Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. Who can explain what that means? prophesy with harps, lyres, and cymbals. Of Jedethon, the sons of Jedethon, Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshii, da 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 under the direction of their father Jedethon, with the harp, who prophesied in giving thanks and praising the Lord. I think prophesying means speaking forth the word of God with song, Right? Nehemiah 12 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem they sought out for the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem, so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Job thirty thirty-one, therefore my harp is tuned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of those who weep. Psalm four, for the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Psalm 5, 0, for the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. Psalm 6, for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-stringed lyre. Psalm 7, a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush a Benjamite. And a shigion is from the verb to reel about through drink. For the choir director on the giddeth, that's a musical instrument, the giddeth. Um Psalm 9, for the choir director on muth laban, which means death to the sun. What is that? Is that, a, is that a tune? Is that a sound? Is that a style? Psalm 12, for the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre. Psalm 22, for the choir director upon aigilith hashashar, hind of the morning. Psalm 30, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a maskil, which is possibly, we don't know, a contemplative or skillful song. Psalm 45, for the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, the lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah. For the choir director, Psalm 46, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, possibly that means for soprano voices. Psalm 53: for the choir director, according to the ma- Mahalothan, sickness or sad tone, that means. It's also a mask of David. So there are many more of these that I could go through. The psalms give us a lot of information about the music and the instruments and perhaps the tunes, none of which we have, right? And even the instruments, we don't really know. Most of them were made of wood and have decayed. We don't have examples of them. We know what the brass instruments were because they, can, they exist, but, but we just don't know what they sounded like, even how they were played. We don't have that information. God did not, like he did with the temple, right? He gave specific directions about how to build that temple, and we could do a pretty good job following his rules. But as far as musical architecture, we don't have much in scripture to run with, not even close to the temple structure. A few more verses. Lamentations 5:14 Elders are gone from the gate, young men from their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned into mourning. Amos 6:5 Those who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves. Luke 15:25 Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house he heard music and dancing. Mark fourteen twenty six. after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's Jesus and his apostles. Acts 16, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. First Corinthians 14, yet even lifeless, lifeless things, either flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Two more, Colossians 3.16, the parallel to that. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then Revelation 14.2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So we receive no information about musical structure, maybe some highs and lows. We don't get any information about melodic structure, harmony, counterpoint, contour, meter, rhythm, tempo, form. None of that is found in scripture. There's simply no details about what the music should or would or could sound like other than instrumentation And one very important thing, mood. Instrumentation and mood, right? Glad and sad, mourning and dancing. We receive words for singing, but no direction, no inspired direction about style. We have titles of songs which may indicate what instruments were used, or again, only what the mood of the music was meant to be. That lack of information infuriated me for a while. And I, like Augustine, just wanted to be done with music and worship. It's about that time that they put me in charge of the band. (laughs) I was, you know, give me reading of scripture, prayer, and preaching, I would have been fine. But we are commanded to sing. God gave us lyrics, and we are to be a singing people. But he did not give us directions about musical style in his inspired word. Though the word of God does not give direction when it comes to musical style, it doesn't mean that there aren't good pastoral reasons to favor one style over another in certain situations at certain times, right? But hear me out. God is so unconcerned about the style of our worship music that scripture contains no discernible direction for it. Specific measurements for the architectural structure of the temple are given, but no musical equivalent is provided. God could have done that somehow, But there's nothing, we're told to sing, to sing a new song, to exhort one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now I can hear somebody saying, but we have the directive for our worship to be done decently and in order. What is disorderly about rock music? What is disorderly about folk music or African drums and voices? It is governed by most of the same rules as box, arias, form, contour, harmonic, rhythm, all well-ordered. Both classical forms and popular forms can be produced in such a way that they tend toward performance and showing off. And that can be disorderly. But what is there about musical structure? Scripture does not define a style of music that pleases God. Unlike a language that has words with concrete meanings and reference... Music is abstract. You cannot create a purely musical equivalent of C-spot run, or even run. You may be able to compose or improvise something that gives an impression of fast motion, but never a specific motion that everybody listening would agree upon, unless of course you use a title to suggest, and that's the use of words, a title to suggest that to the minds of the listeners. The element of the music that is likely to make a similar impression on many hears is the music's mood, the mood, though still without anything coming close to unity, right? Moods like happy, sad, joyful, fearful, violent, fun can be perceived, but little to nothing more without some words or a title or some text setting, right? In point of fact, just like Bob Dylan's Box A minor chord merely says, sad. The first generation reformers translated the scriptures into the vulgar tongue for the sake of comprehension. They did not insist that the people learn Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and they liked music where you could simply pound out the beat. I mean, simple, simple tunes. If music is a kind of language, however limited, those who demand that we retreat, from today's popular music styles have little regard for comprehension and thinking that they've discovered the sacred style that speaks in the Christian way they are overestimating their musical language of choices clarity and based upon that error they are also dismissing music that without any loss of power or clarity right meets our people where they are and can immediately feed them and finally and most importantly to diminish As Wilson did in his piece, the place of the heart in worship is to diminish one of the main indictments of God against man. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. To honor God with lips alone really requires box orderliness and complexity. Hearts that are close to the Lord, though, may faithfully sing anything right? A new song, an old song, a popular song, an aria from a katada, a chorale, a Gregorian chant, or a country and western ballad may sing anything and please and honor God. The offering of Cain was not as good as Abel's because the heart of Cain was far from the Lord. Had the heart, had his heart been faithful, his offering would have been pleasing to God. Separate from the heart here's the point. Separate from the heart, musical styles do not commend us to God. There are no reasons to prefer one style over another in our worship. Add to that the diversity of the text that music must set, and you have a good reason to prefer an eclectic mix of styles, right? But to declare one sacred style, one style pleasing to God, one style Something that commends us to God is to think like those men who built the Tower of Babel. Right? They believed that they could make a name for themselves. They believed that they could climb their way into the presence of God by the work of their own hands. If we think musical excellence or our musical sophistication or our musical styles or, or our aesthetic sensibilities can raise us up into the heavenlies, we are no better than the godless men of Babel. They trusted in their own ability to build a structure and, and in their intellect. And God came down and confused their aesthetic sensibilities and their ability to communicate. It's unpopular to say this, but it is scripture and it's foundational. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Right? That includes our uses of music. What God is concerned about is our hearts before our forms. There is one thing that God honors from sinful man, faith in his son. Faith in his son, and that in and of itself is a gift from him, right? Neither foods, nor clothes, nor musical styles will commend us to God. Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that? But some of you have to repent of your elitism, To agree on that. Even Calvin, who is committed to some kind of style, though he only went so far as to call it grave and majestic, said this that unless voice and song, if interposed in prayer, spring from deep feeling of heart, neither has any value or profit in the least with God. And he said, it is necessary for us to remember what St. Paul says that spiritual songs can be sung truly only from the heart. Prophet Jeremiah rebuked the idolatrous people of Israel for approaching him with unclean hands and impure hearts. Rather than concerning themselves with their hearts as they approached the presence of God in the temple, they trusted in their structures. They trusted even in the temple itself. And so Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. And of course, you recognize that that is the passage that our Lord quotes when he is cleansing the temple. They had made the temple into a shopping mall, a place where people could enter into the presence of God without any preparation, without any forethought, right? without any contemplation of the sins of their heart, without any any thought of reconciling with a brother. They could just enter into the presence of God without any thought. That is our sin today. We enter into the presence of God without a thought. We figure because we enter into the presence of God by a new and living way, by the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, that God is no longer a consuming fire. And he no longer needs to be feared. His holiness of heart still a requirement for entering into his presence and worship. Because of Jesus doing it all, can we give God half-hearted worship? 2 Corinthians six sixteen. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will... Be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God." You see it there. God walks among us through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. He's a Father to us and having these promises we are to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and Spirit perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Should we continue to think that such an approach to God lies in choosing the, the right musical style for our worship? Should we? Or should we actually deal with getting our houses of worship in order by approaching our holy God with holy hearts, with humility before the Alpha and Omega, with a shriveling pride as we come into the presence of omnipotence. Living in an antinomian age does not give us the luxury of arguing about aesthetics. Warfare makes aesthetic arguments seem off-target and ridiculous. Right? Imagine a tank commander refusing to go into battle because of the shade of green they use to paint his machine is a couple shades too dark or light. I think repenting professional musicians have this going, going for them. They know the limitations of music unlike non-musicians. They know the limitations of music. And they once we're in the business of pulling the wool over audiences' eyes, right? Trust me, this is profound music. Trust me. It's it's deep. They had to toe that line because they had given themselves over to the worship of music, heaving their hearts into their mouths every time they heard Mahler's Adagietto and feigning a serious interest in anything written by Mozart or Bartok. Having placed significant weight on music's meaning, They have learned just how impossible it is for music to bear the weight of the infinite. Right? In other words, repenting musicians have come to the same conclusion as Solomon in his search for permanence in the things of the world. Music is vapor, particularly when you try to make it bear the weight of the eternal. Education is vapor, particularly when you try to make it bear the weight of the eternal. Strong drink is vapor, particularly when you try to make it bear the weight of the eternal. And all those things come into their proper place when they are given less of a place than God Almighty. Repenting musicians know the severe limitations of musical style and musical communication. Our commitment must be to God Almighty first. And all the rest comes into place when we get that first thing right. We must approach God with clean hands and pure hearts, with hearts that are fully devoted to God. Then the words of our mouths and all the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in his sight. This is even... Evidenced in the very fact that in the Old Testament believers were to approach God by offering an unblemished animal, an unblemished sacrifice. The excellent quality of the sacrifice is not in itself what makes the offering acceptable to God. That would be to think of the offering in a rather wooden way as if God really is satisfied by a goat with no skin problems. Rather, as God probes the heart for moral integrity... So the priest was the probe the animal's substitute for blamelessness, evidenced symbolically by the lack of blemishes or defects. That's what Morales says in this book we're reading for the pastor's college class on worship. The unblemished quality of the animal reminded the one making the sacrifice that he was required himself to have a right heart and a faithful heart when approaching God. its It was the faith of the one offering the sacrifices that mattered. Did they realize the holiness of God and that He had defined the way to approach Him, the way of ascending the hill of the Lord? Did they realize that if God had not provided a way, there there was no approaching Him? Did they realize that the perfection of the animal was meant to symbolize the purity of their heart? I think when it comes to our worship, we have gotten ahead of ourselves in our discussion. We have talked about whether or not we should raise hands. We've talked about whether or not we should use this or that style. We've talked about whether or not we should lead from the front or the back of the sanctuary. Whether or not we should sing loudly. Whether or not we should sing, whether or not we should have wine in communion. Whether or not we should kneel for the prayer of confession. And I believe God witnesses this as our way of not giving ourselves to what he actually desires. Which is pure hearts. It is so much easier to have a discussion about how we process forward for the communion table and very difficult to discuss who should be coming to that table and what kind of self-examination they should have done. We have become masters at avoiding the main issue of worship, our hearts. We have lost a fear of God. We think that holiness is something that is nice but optional. Because of the shadow cast by Jesus' crucifixion, we believe that there is no work for us to do in the Christian life. We have become antinomian when it comes to the real issues like faith and radical legalists when it comes to peripheral issues like style. If we believe any work we do commends us to God, we must learn from Paul's example that putting confidence in the flesh or in what we can create is foolish. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. What does Paul say next? But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, he's repenting of all those stupid, stupid fleshly things. Here's what Calvin says on that passage. Where we see a false estimate of one's own excellence, Where we see arrogance, where we see pride, there let us be assured that Christ is not known. On the other hand, so soon as Christ shines forth, all those things that formerly dazzled our eyes with a false splendor instantly vanish, or at least are disesteemed. But it is asked whether it is necessary for us to renounce riches and honors and nobility of descent and even external righteousness that we may become partakers of Christ. For all these things are gifts of God, which in themselves are not to be despised. I answer that the apostle does not speak here so much of the things themselves as of the quality of them. It is indeed true that the kingdom of heaven is like a precious pearl for the purchase of which No one should hesitate to sell everything that he has. There is, however, a difference between the substance of things and the quality. Paul did not reckon it necessary to disown connection with his own tribe and with the race of Abraham and make himself an alien that he might become a Christian, but to renounce dependence upon his descent. It was not befitting that from being chaste he should become unchaste, that from being sober he should become intemperate, and that from being respectable and honorable he should become dissolute, but that he should divest himself of a false estimate of his own righteousness and treat it with contempt. We too, when treating of the righteousness of faith, do not contend against the substance of works, but against that quality with which the sophists invest them, inasmuch as they contend that men are justified by them. Paul therefore divested himself, not of works, but of that mistaken confidence in works which he had been puffed up by. Repeatedly, we learn in Scripture that God is concerned with holiness, the clean hands and the pure heart of those who approach him. Do we really think that one style over another can commend us to God's presence? Is this not exactly what Paul argues in Philippians? That all the things he once relied upon to commend him to God are Crap. It's much safer to argue about musical style and have a posture of rigor than it is to be rigorous against our proud, lustful, gossiping hearts. Why is it that those who are most dogmatic about outward forms are least dogmatic about themselves? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside they are full of robbery and self indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean too. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God will accept Bacharows in four parts, if sung with faith, But he will also accept the drums of an African tribe singing with faith and the pipe organs of a cathedral if accompanied by voices making melody from their hearts with faith. So you want me to talk about musical style? There, I've done it. Of course, there are pastoral reasons to go certain ways and avoid certain music and worship, but that's circumstantial. It's not mandated by scripture. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they offered long prayers for what reason? Does anybody remember that? For appearance's sake. They offered long prayers for appearance's sake. I contend that those professional musicians we've put in charge of our worship services offer complicated, classically oriented music for appearance's sake. Likewise, those untrained musicians we've put in charge of our worship services offer complicated, popular oriented music for appearance's sake. So let's repent of the thing for which we should repent. Let's repent until we have hearts that are close to God. Then our hearts will sing with faith to God. Let me finish here. Now, Nadab and Abihu. You have to bring up Nadab and Abihu in in this lecture. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Just before Nadab and Abihu, God has given command after command about how he is to be approached. All the sacrifices have been laid out by God in detail. Nadab and Abihu determined to improvise in their approach to God and likely entered the holy of holies without following what God had explicitly commanded. Leviticus 10.1 says, they did that which he had not commanded them. Secondly, notice what Moses says to Aaron in verse 3. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. In other words, they, they both broke the explicit command of God concerning how to approach his presence. And they did so with a contempt of God in their hearts. Nadab and Abihu did not treat God as holy or honor him before the people. And our discussions today, for reasons I pointed out, revolve around the first point. Why exactly was the fire strange? But what of the second point, that Nadab and Abihu approached the Lord without fear and honor in their hearts? Does that have an application today? Or is it a betrayal of the new covenant for us to worry about our hearts and worship, right? If only we can get the right music, we'll be okay, right? If only we can get the proper liturgy, we'll be okay. If You know, if only we can preach our sermons with the proper eloquence, we'll be okay. If only we can get all the forms down, we'll be ushered right into the presence of God. It's as Calvin said, and it's very simple, that unless voice and song spring from deep feeling of heart, neither has any value or profit in the least with God. Are you willing to accept that simple point? Or will you dismiss heart religion as pietism and individualism? Will you go away from this lecture saying that I care nothing for the church visible in outward forms and the means of grace and the posture of the body and corporate actions of worship? That would be to misunderstand me. That would be completely to misunderstand me. The call to reforming our worship is nothing less than a call to repentance, to the reform of our hearts. Do not make the mistake of thinking it solely a function of making our forms more excellent. God is not obligated by our excellence. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Amen. This has been a presentation of Warhorn Media. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com and welcome to the Reformation.